Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Courtney. I am here with my spouse, Royce. And today we have yet another fabulous guest, another fabulous author. We're so excited for this conversation today. So let's get right into it. Please introduce yourself for our listeners. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Lou Lanoff, the author of One for All. Thank you so much for having me here. One for All is my debut novel. It's a gender-bent reimagining of the Three Musketeers with a main character with pot syndrome. I'm also a fencer. I've been a competitive fencer since I was nine years old, and now I fence and I coach. I recently graduated with my MA in creative writing prose fiction from the University of East Anglia. And yes, I'm so excited to talk to you today about One for All and Pots Wrap and all the good stuff. Yes, let's do it. I'm I'm so excited because when when I was growing up, there were never any books that just fit so perfectly into all of the very niche experiences that I sort of inhabit. And now as an adult, the last couple of years especially, I've started seeing more books and I'd read them and say, "Wait a minute, this is wild because here we have a book with a main character who has POTS, which is something that I have lived with since, I don't know, symptoms probably started developing for me around 11, 12-ish, but also swords and fencing. I would say I am not as accomplished a fencer as you. I didn't start when I was nine. I started a little later, probably around 17 or so. So this was like a really height of my pot symptoms also when I started fencing. But I love swords. I loved fencing uh, for the years that I did it. So to have all of that in one book, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> so we are so excited to have you here. First of all, let's just talk about the pots rep in the book, because I've talked a lot about disability rep on this podcast, but I haven't spoken too much about pots itself. Uh, my sort of big recognizable diagnosis is uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and POTS is a, a common comorbidity, they say. And so POTS actually came up several years after my main diagnosis, because people were saying, well, why are you fainting? Why are you lightheaded? Your other things shouldn't cause this. And I finally found the one doctor who knew what was going on with that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your own personal experience with POTS and how you decided to incorporate it into a historical fiction, no less, where you don't necessarily have the vocabulary back then to say what this syndrome is. Right. So like you, I started experiencing POTS symptoms probably around when I was 11 or 12. And I was diagnosed when I was 14. Um, I also have a fun, you know, I, I always like to say that um, almost all the chronically ill people I know, we have a constellation of chronic illnesses. Yes. <laughs> it's never just one. That's very true. But I think that for me specifically, POTS, my, my POTS symptoms and when my POTS was at its worst, that was a very foundational part of my life, just in terms of I was starting high school, I was changing schools, and I was also dealing with this brand new diagnosis that nobody else knew about. I remember having to print out the Wikipedia page and my mom giving it to my relatives. And I'm saying, well, well, this can't be Lily. Like she, She's done too much. She's not this sick. And they meant well, but that's the very common refrain that I've 
heard from a lot of people that a lot of chronically ill people hear that it's, oh, you don't look sick or, oh, you're able to accomplish such and such. So therefore you must not be chronically ill or therefore you must not be disabled, which is wrong because chronic illness and disability are a spectrum and they look different for everybody. But I also, uh, since I started fencing when I was nine and I started competing when I was 10, I spent very little time fencing before I started having pot symptoms. So for me, the two are inextricably linked. I can't really think about, or I can't really remember a time when I was fencing when I didn't have pot symptoms. So when I started writing One for All, this was after I had already had a novel out on submission to publishers, which didn't sell and had a cast of almost all entirely disabled characters. So when I started writing One for All, I, for the first paragraph of the draft, I didn't have in mind that Tanya was going to have pots, that Tanya was going to be chronically ill because publishing <laughs> has its problems. And it's really scary after spending so much time and energy and effort into this one book that I loved and, and still love so much to have it shot down over and over and over again to then say, okay, I'm going to write another book that could have very similar responses from publishing. And I'm going to spend that time and effort and energy and things might not work out. But after that first paragraph, I realized that that Tanya's story needed to reflect my own and that, like I said before, because fencing and pots are inextricably linked, I really wanted to write about the experience of a fencer with pots, you know, my own experience. So I quickly changed and uh, my draft and it's been that way ever since. As far as writing about POTS in a historical context where the terminology that we have today might not have been present, POTS was really only a diagnosis in the late 20th century. So it is a very new diagnosis, even though uh, we have records of people having symptoms very similar to POTS, probably POTS, since probably around the Civil War, I think, and, and, and predating the Civil War, at least in the U.S. alone. So the way that I came at it was POTS has such a variety of symptoms, even yes. though, yes, right? So the, the main one that people know about, right, is dizziness uh, and fainting. But there's also the POTS headaches. There's the brain fog. There's the stomach issues. There's the, um, the, the way that some of our feet turn purple and gray because of the blood pooling in our extremities. There's all these different things. So I thought about the symptoms that were very visual. So like the, the feet turning purple and gray. I thought about symptoms that I could describe in a way that didn't require medical terms, but still felt authentic to Tanya's perspective. So for example, in my version of a fantastical 17th century France, uh, there is no term for heart rate. <laughs> But Tanya can realize when her heart is pounding fast. So she notices that. We might not, there might have not been a term for brain fog, but Tanya could tell when it was harder to think and harder to verbalize what she was thinking about. Um, so I came at it from that perspective and kind of just building, building, building throughout the novel, all these different symptoms so that by the end, there was kind of this full experience of POTS. And not to say that's everybody's experience of POTS, because everybody's experience with POTS is different. But at least for Tanya, Tanya's experience of POTS was by the end of the novel, it had kind of come together in a way. 
And I really, I, I mean, I commend you. I think it was beautifully done. And for anybody who has POTS, I think there will be at least some symptoms or phrases in here that are going to be very recognizable and relatable. But it also paints a really nice picture for someone who hasn't dealt with this and doesn't know what it looks like. In fact, just right at the top of chapter three, I underlined this sentence because I I loved it so much. I was like, I know exactly what that is. And it was also a bit poetic. When she has one of these dizzy spells, it says, Black petals blossomed before my eyes, more recognizable than any flower in the garden and darker than the center of a sunflower. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I know exactly what that is. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that one of the things that was really important for me is that Tanya's point of view, first person perspective, it's very much rooted in the natural. So a lot of her descriptions of things are rooted in flowers and blooming, which very much stems from the fact that she grew up in Lupiac, which is not Paris. So she grew up in the countryside of France. And her experience is, is one that's rooted in that countryside. And then when she goes to Paris, which is very different than Lufiac, she still brings that tendency to, to describe things in that way with her. And I also really just appreciate it because being someone who is involved in anything active, anything like a sport, uh, for me, before I took up fencing, I had been in dance training for years. I started dance when I was like three. And my dance career was always so funky because I could... I could do these really incredible contortion tricks because of my hypermobility. It took me a while to get a full sort of command of my body. But once I did, I could dance. But sometimes I would get off stage and just collapse. <laughs> and I, I couldn't go jogging. I couldn't go jump roping. And yet I could do these really complicated dances. Um, at least for a temporary period of time. And that was always so difficult to explain to someone why I can do one thing, but not another thing. Because in one context, it could look like I'm incredibly physically able and, and uh, physically accomplished. And that's something that you touch on as well, because you have Tanya saying, well, I can fence when I'm dizzy. Um, in, in her case, her father taught her how and she acknowledges when she might not be, you know, as steady as others, but she has the passion to really try and, and really put in the work to get on that level. And I can only imagine that that also perhaps came from your own experience, because mm -hmm. that felt familiar to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. So I before I got POTS, I was in the top 10 in my age category nationally for fencing in the United States. And then that went very far downhill once I developed pot symptoms. So I think that the the moment that I remember most viscerally is fainting in right after about at a North American Cup and the athletic medic team just panicking because they had no idea what was going on, even though to be clear, because of USA fencing guidelines, which I, I, I think are a good thing, you know, you have to put in if you have some sort of condition. That way the medics know and can help you properly if there's a medical emergency. But there's seeing it on a form and then there's actually seeing somebody faint. There's a difference. And I remember them trying to find my pulse and I couldn't find it and they were panicking. And my mom is going, no, it's fine. 
she's okay. This, this happens. Is normal. <laughs> like, what? This is normal. We can't find her pulse. That's a POTS thing sometimes. Their pulse is weak. Their pulse is strong. It goes all over the place. Don't worry. <laughs> but I, at that point, had really struggled competitively for the past year with, I, I didn't know it was POTS at the time, but with dizziness and fencing masks because of the metal mesh that goes over them that protects your face. It's kind of like a grid, but it's a, it's not, it's not a wide grid. It's a narrow grid. Um, and when you're dizzy and you're looking at that mesh, it kind of just blurs together. So you can't really see anything. So I was fencing, unable to really see my opponent with pots messing with my depth perception, which was, a, I think is, was the biggest thing is not being able to really tell where you are in space. And then all the other associated symptoms, which while not directly impacting my fencing, they just impacted my ability to function, which is the headache and other stuff. So at that point, I was spending a lot of side uh, um, practices on the sidelines to dizzy defense. So my coach would give me fencing lessons in his rolling office chair. And I slowly started getting to the point where I could fence again. And I was very lucky in the sense that even though my pot symptoms were not minor, they were definitely not mild. The doctors who I spoke to when they diagnosed me told me that because of fencing, because fencing had, had strengthened my legs so much and my blood vessels so much, it actually prevented my blood pressure from dropping as much as it typically would. The heart rate is another story, but it helped me keep my legs strong. And then, so I was able to come back to fencing a bit more quickly with the dizziness, but not as much of the fainting. So at that point, when I was 14 or 15, I actually had this opportunity to fence the same fencer who I had fenced against and lost and fainted. And I won. And it was this just really wonderful full circle moment. That sounds like a novel in itself. <laughs> yeah, it was. And, and I really, I really struggle with the idea of, you know, overcoming POTS because you don't overcome a chronic illness. It's not like it goes away anywhere. It's not an accessory. It's not a handbag that you can just set down. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, bye, don't have to deal with that anymore. We don't have a lot of those full circle moments. So to have that full circle moment was a special gift. And I just learned different ways to deal with fencing while dizzy. And it helped a lot that in college, the bouts are only to five points. And the, um, they're not to 15 points. So I was able to fence shorter bouts and I was able to be more successful. But fencing while being chronically ill while having pots, I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult. It still is incredibly difficult. And I love the sport, but it, 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 is, it is difficult, but worth it. Very much worth it. And you said you also uh, coach now as well. Did that sort of come from just a passion to teach and coach or was a part of that? Well, I can't really fence as much as I would like to, but it can still be a part of my life in this way. Because I know for me, I, I taught dance lessons for a number of years, like 15 or so years. And part of that overlapped with my actual dancing and performing. But after I really just could not dance as much as I wanted to, I leaned far more into teaching and coaching. So I was just curious about your experience with that. Right. I think it's a combination of a, of a few different things. Um, I've always loved teaching and coaching. I started coaching when I was a teenager. 
before I left for college. And uh, then during the summer, when I would come back, I would coach. I also started teaching creative writing at local nonprofits around that time, too. So I really I really like teaching and I really like coaching from a writing perspective. I can't remember where I read this, but somebody was quoting a professor that they had about the idea that the number of books that you can write in your life is finite. But if you teach, the the number of writers who you can influence, the number of books that you will influence is infinite. And I really love that idea. As far as me coaching now, a lot of it is, you know, I can't fence as much as I would like to anymore. But also, it's really important for me because when I was starting to fence, I was the only girl in my class. And then I switched fencing clubs. I switched fencing weapons. So I used to fence foil and then I fenced saber. For for those who don't know, there are three different kinds of fencing. There's epee, foil, and saber. Saber is kind of the closest to Pirates of the Caribbean fencing. (laughs) My friend calls it the slashy fencing. Uh, you hit with the sides of the blade and not the tip. So it ends up being a lot faster. And I maybe had two other girls in my class who were within two or three years of me. So when I came back after college, I thought it was really important that young girls got to see a coach who was a woman. Fencing coaches who are women are, there are finally more of us. We finally got the first woman coach um, as an Ivy League fencing coach for both men's and women's teams, like just the other year. We are very wow. behind uh, Daria Schneider at Harvard. But, and I, I think I'm one of the only women saber coaches in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. There are um, FA coaches and foil coaches who are women in the area, but I think I, think I might be one of the only um, women for saber. But it was really important to me because when I was a little girl, when we would watch movies, for instance, at summer camp, at fencing summer camp, we would watch movies like The Man in the Iron Mask, which was my first introduction to The Three Musketeers, actually, and The Princess Bride, and they're technically both books into movies, I guess. But And I love them, but none of the women had swords, and it was really weird to be at a fencing camp and watching this movie and not seeing anybody like me with a sword and then being surrounded by other boys it was just it was a very strange experience so it's and it's really nice to see how this sport has changed women's saber fencing we Mariel Zagunis won the first ever women's saber olympic gold medal we didn't have an olympic women's saber event until recently because Saber was considered uh, too dangerous for our fragile female bodies. Um, mm. So, <laughs> but I've seen as the U.S. women's saber team has done so spectacularly well at the Olympic level, at the international level, I've seen a lot more little girls show up to start fencing. Oh, that's wonderful. And there's always a huge rush the year after the Olympic cycle. So I'm really looking forward to uh Paris 2024, because I know that there will be another uh, huge rush of of girls wanting to fence. And now I think that, you know, there's a pretty even split that there's of girls and boys and non-binary students just in general 
across the board and fencing classes. And it's just really nice to see that they're able to have that experience that I didn't have. Yeah, that's so incredible. I mean, there there are so many in sports and professions where we there is still very much a, a gender gap. But that's also really complicated when you add chronic illness on top of it, at least mm-hmm. I find, because on one hand, you're like, well, I want to be the woman in the room. I want to be the positive uh, female role model. uh, And I want to show that we don't just have these weak, frail bodies that can't do these things. And then on the other hand, you kind of do have a weak, frail body sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and it's also interesting too, because I'm now at the point where um, when I left for college and was coming back to coach, the kids in the classes, they still knew me because I had been their teammate recently. So they knew about POTS or they knew at least that I was sick. But now it's been long enough that these competitive fencers, they don't know my condition. So sometimes when I fence and I get really sick or dizzy and I have to like put my legs up against the wall or I have a really bad POTS flare, they are very confused. But they've been really understanding. And I think that the thing about it is, is that adults are really weird about disability and chronic illness. Yeah. They're so weird. When I had a really bad POTS flare and I was trying to coach a class of 20 students and I kind of, you know, had to raise my voice a little bit. I said, listen, I am very sick right now. I need really need you all to focus and listen and help me out here. And they were so well behaved for the rest of the class. They get it. They do. They get it. And um, in a way that adults don't, (laughs) because they haven't been taught yet to be afraid of chronic illness and disability, I think, at least for the most part. I think that it's also hard too, because I mean, fencing has an ableism problem, just like every organized sport has an ableism problem. I think that, for example, and I think that USA Fencing has been listening, and I'm very impressed with how they've pivoted some of their language usage. But there was an issue a while ago where they were equating disabled fencers to para-fencers. And not all disabled fencers are wheelchair users. And I think that, too, there's this issue of people, what people don't realize is I, at least from what I can tell, I think that there's probably a higher rate of disability within the athletic community than there is just in general. Because if you think about it, stuff like post-concussion syndrome, injuries that haven't healed well, or repetitive injuries. Most of the athletes who we know that retire early are retiring because of disability, because of injuries. But we don't call it that. We don't talk about it like that because, again, we have this obsession with the idea that disability equals weakness and that, you know, disability and athleticism can't exist within the same body. So I I try to be as open about my disability and chronic illness as possible with the kids and with the other parents. But I think, too, that it's also helped me as a coach because I think that every athlete has heard before, oh, you know, you're not, you're fine. Keep, keep running or, oh, you know, just, just a few more laps or, oh, you know, suck it up or stuff like this. Right. So when a kid comes to me and says, oh, my head hurts or, oh, you know, something like this. To be clear, if a kid says they get got hit in the head or something that is very clearly like potentially an injury, I'm like, no, you go sit down. That's not even a question. But if it's a question of, oh, I have a headache, I don't know. I don't know if I if I can keep going. The thing that I always say is I do not know your body. I am not going to tell you whether or not you have to sit out or whether or not you have to keep going. 
Like you, you, you have to make that decision for yourself. But if your pain gets worse at any point, I will make you sit down. Like you will have to sit out. And I, I wish I had had somebody say that to me when I was younger, because for so, you know, so often I, you know, chronically ill people are told, oh, your symptoms are all in your head. Doctors trying to tell you like how your body acts or what your symptoms are as if they know your body better than they do. And I don't ever as a coach want to assume that I know how an injury feels or a headache feels for another student. And usually what ends up happening with students is if if they feel like they need to sit down, they sit down and then they come back in 10 minutes because they're in a comfortable space where they don't feel like they're being punished for being sick or being injured. They're not being punished, but that also they're being told that they can trust themselves and how they feel because that is the insidious part of, oh, it's all in your head or, oh, you're not actually feeling these things is that you start to believe it. You start to think, okay, well, maybe, maybe I am, maybe I am imagining it. Are my symptoms real? And it just turns into this whole right feedback loop, awful feedback loop of medical gaslighting. And it's really hard to distinguish your symptoms from and reality. And it's just, it's, it's rough. So I'm hoping, I think that at least from what I can tell, this younger generation of, of chronically ill people seem to be if not dealing with that less, they're coping with it in healthier ways in terms of they have access to talk to two other disabled and chronically ill people who can tell them, no, like you are actually, your, your, your feelings about this are valid. Nobody needs to validate your symptoms for you. Your experience of them is your own experience because of things like social media and just a wider understanding about chronic illness and disability, which I mean, the bar is so low, like we, we <laughs> really need the, the bar, the bar is subterranean. But I think that we're slowly but surely getting there. Yes. And that is so important to speak to kids that way, whether they are chronically ill or not, whether they might become chronically ill later in life or not, because it, when you also pair it with a sports context, at least at the time I was growing up, I hope some things are changing, <laughs> but it was very much a mentality of like, fight through it. <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. E even if it does hurt, even if there is something wrong, like, just keep going, push yourself harder, because that's what we do. <laughs> and it it is really unhealthy, because n when you also pair, say, like, oh, well, especially kids, we we just infantilize them way more than they deserve because people say like, oh, well, they're they're probably just trying to get out of class. So like, oh, they're they're just bored. And 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 that that is very rarely the case, I find. But when you do get all those things, oh, you're lying or you're faking or just fight through it anyway, then kids who do grow up and realize I am chronically ill, I do have a disability or a constellation of disabilities, as you very aptly put it, then you start to realize exactly how abnormal a lot of your individual experiences actually are. Because I always knew there were a couple things here and there that were weird, but I'm still to this day finding things that are so natural and normal about my body that I'm just now realizing, oh, not everybody is like this. Not everybody, that, that's just me thing. That's just for POTS or EDS or MCAS or any of these other things that I have. So it really also hinders like learning and education and self-exploration to really get to know yourself and to know what's normal. And I think, 
I think too, something that struck me about what you said in terms of what's normal for us. And one of the reasons why it took me a while to get diagnosed. And to be fair, my diagnosis time for POTS is quite, was quite quick. Two, only a couple years is quite quick for POTS. I think the oh, average wow. diagnosis, the average, now to be fair, because of so many people with long COVID are being diagnosed with POTS, the average diagnostic time has gone down. Interesting. There's still some studies being done about that. However, the most recent data that I saw um, in terms of average diagnostic time, it was over six years. Oh, yeah. Mine was well over that. Yeah. So I I remember when I was first being told about POTS, I was like, wait a second. It's not normal for your vision to completely black out when you stand up. I thought that happened to everybody. No. Nope. Yeah. You don't know it's normal until other people can see. Mm-hmm. You don't know it's not normal until you faint and someone freaks out. But everything that's just happening behind your own eyes in your own head, you just rationalize it away. Right. And I think that's been one of the most interesting things about writing one for all has been like the reader response that I've gotten in terms of people saying, oh, Tanya has this symptom. I didn't know that that was a POTS symptom or that was a symptom of chronic illness. I have that. I need to go to my doctor. (laughs) Yes, please do that. Please go to your doctor. I was going to say some of that is complicated too when broader society may sometimes experience a, I guess, more minor symptom that if you don't really dig into your language is vaguely familiar. Because I think people, you know, without POTS or without other conditions that that may affect, you know, dizziness or things like that may have a moment where they stand up too quickly. And if you don't really dig into how frequently does this happen or what is the exact condition that you're feeling and get into it, you may not realize that you're experiencing two different things. I I had an issue where due to uh, chronic social anxiety, I would faint or come close to fainting while giving presentations at school. And part of me taking so long to realize that I had a chronic anxiety condition was because this was just written off because sometimes kids just faint is what I would be told. Like sometimes my mom would just get lightheaded in an elevator and people would be like, well, yeah, that happens to kids sometimes. Sometimes kids faint when you cut their hair and that's just the world we live in. That's that's what happened to me the very first time I ever fully fainted, lost consciousness. Uh, I was actually in the shower and scared the living daylights out of my mother, of course. Uh, so she rushes me to the hospital and we had just the worst experience in that ER. The doctor was so dismissive and he was so rude. It was like, He very much had the air of we are wasting his time because he was like, yeah, it's because you were washing your hair. Like that, that's why, like sometimes kids faint when you touch their hair and, and like, that's fine. It's, it's probably not going to happen again. And if it does, it's because of your hair. And, and my mom was so dissatisfied with that. She's like, no, my daughter just fainted in the shower. Like she could have hit her head. Like, what if I wasn't home? Like, this could be really, really dangerous. And he's like, what, what do you want me to say? It's, it's, it's because of the hair. It's. <laughs> that is wild to me. I just have never, <laughs> I mean, I'm glad that I've never heard that. The big thing for me was in my long trek to diagnosis was one of the biggest things that I was told was, oh, Lily's just type A. 
Oh no. <laughs> type A makes you faint and dizzy and sick all the time. That's what being type A is. That's confusing. And then of course, like hypochondriac and all the, that other stuff. But also showers are super dangerous when it comes to fainting and for pots. And if anybody's listening, yes. if you have pots, please buy a shower, a shower chair or a stool, please, please, please. Yeah. And that, that was just wild to me because also, of course, like that was only the first time I fainted. Then it started happening all the time in other contexts. And we were like, hey, doctors, I wasn't washing my hair this time. What do you got for that? And they're like, oh, you'll probably grow out of it. Yeah. The growing out <laughs> of it comment I've heard a ton of times. And I think that also like even with even amongst like doctors who specialize in pods, there was this at least when I was diagnosed and when I was a teenager, I don't know if they're still telling kids this and I hope they're not. There was this like almost everyone grows out of it when they become an adult. And I remember talking to another teenager with pods at that time. And he said, you know, every single adult that I know who is a teen with POTS still has POTS. Yeah. So what exactly are they basing the statement on? I don't know what it is, where this data is coming from. And I know, I don't know if partially it's to kind of give um, comfort to chronically ill teenagers or parents, but that's, that's not a very good way to comfort somebody. I mean, no lying to people about their chronic illness is the exact opposite of making somebody comfortable. Yeah. And I know in my case, and I don't know how common this is, or if that could be where the basis is for that, because I, I, I've i heard people say similar things. So I don't know if this is where that's coming from. But I do now actually lose consciousness a lot less than I did as a teenager. That doesn't mean the dizziness is gone. That doesn't mean that other symptoms are gone. And I still will occasionally completely faint. But there was a period of a couple of years when I was a teenager where it was like an every other day, I would completely be laid out and and uh, lose consciousness. And so I don't know if it's just that very observable. Well, you're not actually, you know, hitting the ground like you used to be. So you're fine. <laughs> I think I think too a lot of it is is that like many chronic illnesses POTS is a moving target. It's not you don't have the same symptoms always, right? You can go there are POTS flares, you can have remission and respite from it, but then you can develop new symptoms. Like for example, I recently developed like my fingers get numb. <laughs> That's weird. That's from POTS, but that's a new thing. That's only in the past year. And it's been over a decade since I was diagnosed with POTS. And it's like, oh, all new symptoms. That's fun. Mm -hmm. It changes. It fluctuates. In different days, there are different severities. I frequently have a random part of my body go numb. <laughs> yeah. It's one, of, it's one of, it's, it's, I think I've heard it said, it's like, is this a new chronic illness symptom? Am I dying? Who knows? <laughs> like, um, kind of thing. But yeah, no, it's, I think that if anything, I've learned to deal with it in a better way. And, you know, to be like, okay, this is probably a new symptom. And to listen to your body better too, because, you know, the world doesn't really allow children to listen to their own bodies. So as you come into adulthood, as a chronically ill adult who was a chronically ill child, that's a whole new skill you have to learn all on your own, usually, because usually no one's going to teach you. Yeah. And I, and I, but I do think it's also, it's right. It's unlearning a lot of this, a lot of the stuff that you've been taught, whether that's by doctors or just by society at large, you're having to teach your, to unlearn 
the ableism that they've forced upon you and a lot of the internalized ableism that has been forced upon you. Definitely. And I know, I mean, when when I first met Royce, for example, I I wasn't losing consciousness several times a week like I used to be, but I knew it happened sometimes. So I was like, just to be safe, I better mention that this is a thing that happens sometimes and I'll be back soon if it does. Like, no need to call an ambulance because that's that's actually, oddly enough, one of my bigger fears about fainting is that it's going to be somewhere in public or with someone who doesn't know and they're going to just like freak out and call an ambulance because ambulances are expensive. (laughs) I had a very, yes, and I had a really interesting experience with that in terms of when I went to my master's program, I was in Norwich in England and I got very sick at one point and they, my roommate called some person. I don't know if it was actually an ambulance or not. And I was panicking. Was like, no, 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 don't do happened? that. I was like, don't, I don't I'm an American. No, no. And they're like, why are you so worried? And they went, oh, right. You have to pay thousands of dollars at home, don't you? I said, yes. They're like, oh no, this is, we don't pay for going to the hospital here. That's not a thing that we do. But oh my gosh, yeah, no, that's, and I think that too, the idea of one, somebody not understanding and calling an ambulance, but, but two, that's also not even just, not even just how much money it is, but also the added stress of, you know, we know um, how best to recover after fainting or after a POTS flare, all of a sudden being surrounded by paramedics who, you know, are just doing their job, but having to try to explain to people when you're still dizzy, it's like, no, no, like this is POTS. That's that's difficult to try to explain to people when you're dizzy. Yeah. Or people who try to get you to stand up immediately, like, come on, walk it off. Yeah. <laughs> show yeah. show <laughs> me that you're alive. <laughs> it's like, absolutely not. No. Actually, the the it and I, I'm just thinking to all of the major reactions I've gotten to fainting. Normally, after I knew that this is just a thing that happens sometimes, and don't call an ambulance, just chill for a sec, everyone. I I did start warning people. And I'm so glad I warned Royce because I did actually end up fainting on on one of our first like dates together. And I think you caught me. That was that was a baller move. Aw. <laughs> I can't remember. You can't I, I I'm pretty sure you did because the way I was laying was very graceful. <laughs> I think the first year that we knew each other you fainted you were still fainting quite a bit. Well quite a bit by my standards. Yeah. But um, you had gotten enough control of it that basically as soon as the dizziness would hit you, you would adjust to like brace for impact. I'm like, oh, so no. <laughs> generally, even down. if I was in cr- across the room, you'd usually get to the floor, probably while still partially conscious. Or I'd be like halfway across the room and like a leg would just go numb and I'd be like, Royce, help me get to the couch. My left leg is gone. Um, <laughs> so... It's it's really nice to have a uh, supportive partner when you have disabilities, because I have had previous partners that were not so supportive. But I've even had medical professionals like way overreact to me fainting in ways that have been really alarming at times. I was getting my blood drawn once as a teenager, and I fainted while they were drawing my blood. And then I, this was the first time I had, they called it at the time a pseudo seizure, like my whole body was shaking and it wasn't actually a seizure, but it looked like one. 
And they were like calling codes and they were like, 911, like someone get an ambulance here. And it's like, you're medical professionals. I am, I am at the doctor's office. So everyone was rushing and freaking out. And I was like, no, it's fine. Calm down. Yeah. It's also, it's also just alarming that they didn't know what, what fainting when you're seated looks like, because it looks completely different. Cause I don't, I don't think people know that when you, when you faint, when you're seated, it looks completely different than when you're fainting, when you're standing up. Right. Cause it does, it does look a bit like a seizure because of the way that your body reacts. Cause it needs to be lying down. It needs to be on its side for airflow. And when you're seated and you're fainted, your body just doesn't really know what to do. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And it, it, it was wild because they, once I came to, they were like, all right, I guess we're okay. I guess we aren't going to, you know, rush you off to the ER. But they, I was like, why, why is this news to you? I, I would suspect that this is the safest place for me to do this at because I would think that you'd be prepared for it. But uh, actually the, the most deeply unpleasant coming to experience, I suppose, that I've ever had was when it was the end of like a jazz festival, like an outdoor music festival that I was at. Pretty small one, not nothing huge. And I was there with a couple friends of mine and we were just walking back to our car at the end of the night and none of us were even drinking. It was a very low key event, not like a big wild party or anything. And I fainted on the way back and my friends knew me very well. They knew how to take care of me. They were completely fine. But there was a cop that saw me faint. And to him, that was horribly suspicious. So he comes over and he starts ordering my friends around and he starts shining his flashlight directly in my eyes and like grilling me about like, what drugs are you on? Like what? And it was horrible. And of course, my friends were trying to say like, "Uh, hey, get off her. Like she's she's got a condition. This is normal. We know how to take care of her. And he was just having none of it. He was... The the cops in my hometown were very very mean to me <laughs> on more than one occasion. I think I think police in general need better disability training. But yes. yeah, no, it's it's yeah. I I think that um yeah no I think that being chronically ill as an as somebody who's an older teenager or an adult too is also it's looked upon with a lot of suspicion more so than I think I was as a chronically ill tween or younger teenager. So even just I like when I use the accessible seats on the metro, I get dirty looks because it's like, well, you shouldn't be using that seat. You you should be giving that up for somebody else. Actually, I need this seat. And yeah, no, I think that people just automatically react in a very strange way. And especially because of the pot symptoms as they are, you know, the dizziness, the fainting. I'm sure you also did not react well to the flashlight, which when you said that, oh, oh my whole entire, was... I, I like had a full, bu- ooh, because Awful. of how it was terrible. Yeah, the, the flashlight, like, especially, you know, a lot of people with POTS like get migraines or headaches and are light sensitive. So I'm just, oh gosh, even just the, ooh. It made it so much harder for me to get back to myself. Yeah. No, it oh, yeah, it it was terrible. But yeah, so and also I I very frequently walk with a cane and I have for years. And actually my first cane was a sword cane. Oh. So that's fun. I don't know if sword canes are legal where you are. Different states have different sword cane laws. Honestly, in the I don't really know anymore in the US. I mean, they're letting people carry around 
anything they want at this point. So I think that a sword cane should be fine. Yeah, well, we we happened upon a sword cane that had like had like a snake on it. And oh, cool. We have a pet snake. We had two at the time. And so I was like, a snake and a cane and a sword. And it just happened to be exactly my right height. So I was like, it's fate. Gotta get it. But then we got home and we were like, wait a minute, we should probably look up concealed blade laws in the state. And uh, Royce, you can probably relay them better than me because in our state, they're very legal, hilariously so. This law was really, really funny, actually. Yeah, the the funny part for me was I had looked up these laws a few years before I met Courtney, so I thought I knew what they were. And they had changed pretty recently to basically be everything is legal except for ballistic knives, which are federally illegal, and for some unexplained reason, throwing stars. Hmm. But I think yeah, it was no specifically stars. it was specifically written in sword canes, even ones that can defy metal detectors are legal. Yeah, like, I, even, I don't know who on the commission had even, <laughs> a sword cane like that, who they really wanted to that they really wanted to get written into the law. But it was oddly specific. It was it was. Yeah, it was like even swords made of unconventional materials that may defy metal detectors are perfectly legal. It's like, oh, OK, <laughs> good to know. That is a choice. There's a dangerous choice, but it is a choice. It was one of the weirdest weapon laws I've ever read in my life. So, uh, but yes, I, I am an appreciator of swords, which of course only grew after I took up fencing and I got pretty good at fencing. I never did big like tournaments, but we, we, you know, did bouts in our own little local club and then I, then I got a, got a sword and I actually, I... <laughs> I've promised our podcast listeners that I will eventually tell this story. So maybe this is the episode where I tell this story. Oh. One time I accidentally pulled a sword on a couple of Mormons. Oh. <laughs> and <laughs> so when I was 17, just about to turn 18, I bought this really dirt cheap, ratty, rundown trailer house in a trailer park. And it was mostly because when I wasn't 18 yet, I couldn't like legally sign a lease, but I wasn't living with parents. So my like living choices were so complicated, but I could technically buy this uh, trailer and all I had to do was pay like a very cheap lot rent every, every month to stay in this trailer park. But they had very, very sketchy rules when I moved in and the things I had to sign, which must have been legal. I don't know. But they're they're in control of whether or not people can live there. So I guess they can do whatever they want. But when I moved in, they made me sign this contract saying that if cops come to my house for any reason, whether it was me who called them, someone else who called them on me, whether I was calling them on someone else, they're like, if you are the reason cops are in this trailer park, we will evict you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right. Well, that's... Uh, this, where's this the meth lab <laughs> sounds like a problem and multiple for multiple reasons so i was like you know what that's fine i'm not too fond of the cops in this town because they've been cruel to me for years so i won't be calling the cops no problem uh, sign their thing moved in 
And this was not the sketchiest trailer park in town, but it also wasn't the nice trailer park in town. And it was right next to the interstate and next to a like walking trail. So we would occasionally get people who were coming around who were either uh, clearly on drugs or possibly having a mental health issue. And one time I, I was home alone. I was 18 at this time. and this very large man just starts banging on my door and it's he, he starts like yelling and and like yelling for me to come out <laughs> and i was like not answering that door absolutely not and so i just went about my business and he went around my house and found the window that i was sitting next to and then started banging on the window and yelling at me and and i just yelled like get out of here and like close my blinds. And I was like, all right, we're going to wait for this to go. He banged on my back door, my front door, every single window. And then, then things were quiet for a bit. And so I was like, all right, I guess he's gone. And I was like, cause here I'm now at this point where for a prolonged period of time, he's banging on my house and I'm like, I can't call the cops, <laughs> but what am I going to do here? And then after a period of time, I hear another rapping at my door. And so I was like, all right, time to fix this. I grabbed my sword. I answered the door and I said, I told you to get out and I pull it. And there are two little Mormon boys oh, no. at my door in their ties, holding their books. And they just have this look of horror on their face. And I was like, oh no, I'm so sorry. I thought you were someone else. Um, they declined my offer to come in and have tea. Oh, and they, no. they did not leave me a Book of Mormon either. <laughs> I felt so bad. But and, and so now occasionally, like people talk about swords and be like, or or people will talk about Mormons. And I'll say, yeah, I accidentally pulled a sword on a couple of Mormons once. And everyone will be like, that doesn't sound like an accident. And I'm like, no, I promise it was. I felt so bad. <laughs> so there you are, listeners. I promised you I'd tell you that story. That was that story. <laughs> so shifting gears here a little bit, I want to talk about the queer representation in this book, because we do have an ace character. And what, what I actually like to do when I go into books where someone has said there's going to be queer rep or there's ace rep in particular, I try to go in without knowing who the character is so I can see like how soon I'm able to spot it. And I'll be honest, the first chapter or two, I thought it was going to be Tanya, the main character, the way she was being written. But that doesn't seem to be the case. So tell me a little bit about uh, the Ace character in the story and how you wrote her the way you did and just... Right. So there are actually two Ace characters. Just one is does not explicitly say so on the page. But the one who does explicitly say so on the page is Madame de Clavy. And she, when she is telling Tanya... I guess this is kind of a spoiler, but not really. But when when Madame de Treville is talking about her childhood and upbringing to Tanya, and she's explaining to her how she came to be uh, the head of Tanya's Order of the Musketeers, uh, Madame de Treville talks about how she wanted to be a musketeer um, and how she had trained to be a musketeer, but they kind of laughed her away when she tried to apply, which I mean, is, is not the correct term, but let's just go with it. But she ends up training with an important character in One for All when they're both kids. 
And Madame de Trivi talks to Tanya about how her parents uh, allowed this training, this fencing training, because they were hoping that she would end up marrying this other character who is an important character in One for All. And Madame de Trivi kind of says, you know, I, I never had any interest in any of it in, you know, getting married and, you know, being in like love in that sense. And I really wanted to make sure that it was very clear that Madame de Trivi was canon arrow ace on the page. And, but also too, I think that it was really important also to show her like in this position of power in which she is very fulfilled in her life, because I think that there's this misconception that arrow ace people or ace people in general, like aren't happy with their lives or can't be fulfilled in their lives. Whereas like Madame de Trevi, like Madame de Trevi is a complex character and she definitely has her flaws as we all do. But I don't think anybody could could accuse her of, of being uh, disappointed with her status, with how, how things have gone about. Uh, she is a head of an order of musketeers. She has a very high social standing. She regularly has meetings with the um, cardinal who's the head advisor to the king. She is living a great life. She's living her best life. She's such a cool character. She's such a cool character because, yeah, in the early chapters, I mean, you see Tanya being very reluctant for the concept of marriage. So those were sort of the like, ooh, is is, is the main character ace? But then we get Madame Trevi and I was like, I actually really, really like that because we don't get a lot of adult aspect characters especially in in YA as a genre because normally the the focus is all the the young adults it's it's the teenagers it's the early 20s and we we just need more ace rep everywhere but we do disproportionately have very young ace rep in media so to see that you know this is the adult figure in this book, Be Ace, I thought was really, really cool. And it it wasn't subtle, which I appreciate. And I'm always a little concerned about that when it comes to, to historical uh, fiction as well, because much like with the disability and chronic illness, you don't have the exact vocabulary to play with either. So it's like, how are you going to make it transparent to the reader and not leave any room for for error or for misreading it. Because when it comes to Ace Rep, I find that if there's even a shadow of a doubt, people will argue it passionately that this character is not Ace. And I see that even more so than other queer orientations, I think. So that that's always my concern. So I was I was really glad to see that. But uh, tell, tell me about the other Ace character. Yeah, so I wrote Arya as demisexual as demi by and it's not specifically like she doesn't outright state it on the page but i tried to show kind of her journey in realizing her attraction to another character which is a spoiler in terms of her that that journey of where she didn't necessarily she wasn't necessarily she didn't know that character very well and once she got to know them more she started becoming more attracted to them and I mean, there are scenes that I had to cut for word count, which, like you said, it's hard in a historical fiction when you're not when you don't necessarily have the same terminology that we do today. But I have pretty much as close as I can get to Arya's outright stating that she's that she's demisexual on the page. And if I ever get to write more books with one for all that scene, will I will force that scene into those books <laughs> that will be in there. 
but that 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 element to me was important too but it's just one of those things where you know one for all when i initially wrote it was well over 120,000 words and then it got cut down to under 100,000 it went out on submission then when we edited it like we cut out like another 30,000 wrote another 30,000 so there's just so much got cut that i wish could have stayed in and that was that was one scene. So I, I, I did my best with the space that I was allotted to represent that experience of Arya's identity, but I hope I get to try to about it more. That would be excellent. I would love to see more of that too, because Demi Rep, we don't have all that much. And I don't think I've ever seen Demi Rep in a historical context before. I've read a couple of modern books that have demisexual representation. I think I think it's hard too in historical fiction because especially the way that some characters are written in historical fiction in terms of like women who are like I don't want marriage I am like you know think that you know I'm not attracted to men like I want to go do my own thing and then it's kind of kind of used as a plot device where it's like well like you said it's like well are 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 they dummy or is this kind of like a I don't know. It, it's it's one of those things in the genre. Or is it rejecting the patriarchy? <laughs> is it rejecting the patriarchy? And it's like, I think that that sometimes gets conflated in historical fiction in a really weird way. And that leads to, like you said, like not a lot of demi-rep or at least readers not knowing if there's demi-rep or not. So uh, yeah, it would. I, I think that we need more demi-rep in general, but I think that it would be really nice to see it in more historical fiction as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't mind my asking, and feel free to not answer if you don't want, but what compelled you to write this representation for these characters? I think that the big thing for me was I thought it would be kind of ridiculous to have four teenage girls as musketeers and not have at least one of them be LGBTQ+. I mean, just 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 the statistical averages like come on now i mean it just it wouldn't be possible and that doesn't necessarily mean that then they would have to have a relationship that was on the page but but just statistically like they would be there would be at least one yeah so for me it it felt like the only way i could authentically write about the experience of being a teenage girl but also you know authentically write our world how it is. And I realize that's kind of strange to say, given the fact that it's set in a fantastical version of 17th century France. But I don't think that that's an excuse for not providing representation. And I've seen certain authors say that, oh, like, I don't write about certain characters or certain, you know, characters with certain identities, because they can't have happy stories, or they can't have, yeah, you know, so I think that just writing people as they existed, because it's not like LGBTQ people are a new thing. No, of course not. They've always been just the same exact way that chronically old people aren't a new thing. <laughs> like disabled people aren't a new thing. Like, yes, it's a perfect parallel. And people get really weird. Uh, straight, able-bodied, usually white people get very weird about historical fiction. And especially when it gets into fantasy, people will be like, well, there aren't any disabled characters in this fantasy world. Like, why not? Or sometimes you'll have a fantasy world where everyone is white. And they're like, well, that's just what the world is. It's like, 
I got the most like hate tweets in response to somebody was like, oh, quote tweet with your most controversial fantasy opinion. And I had just had a really rough day and my tolerance was so low. It was just the final straw. And I quote tweeted along the lines of uh, if your magical world doesn't have disability, if your fantasy world doesn't have disability, it's not magic. It's eugenics. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody got really mad about that. I bet they did, but they shouldn't have because that's correct. That is the right opinion. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, because we've, we've, um, we, we play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, we actually DM for an all ace group of friends. It's very exciting. But several years ago, there was a creator who made like the combat wheelchair so that you could have a wheelchair using character and be able to still move about the world effectively. And the amount of hate and vitriol that this this creator got for making this because everyone was like, well, no one would actually be in a wheelchair in D&D because someone's just going to fix it with magic. It's like, even spells have limitations. Are we playing the same game? Like spells have time limits. Like also, what is the spell that's cure disability? We don't have that spell. And if we're treating magic like medicine, like medicine doesn't cure chronic illness. It doesn't cure injury. It doesn't cure disability. And a lot of doctors don't even do that good at helping manage those things either. I always find it so interesting when people go the whole, oh, well, magic can cure disability route. Because just from a writing perspective, when you write, when you develop a magic system, we're always taught, you know, that there has to be a price, there has to be a cost to the magic in order for this magic system to work. Like, what is the cost? Because if everybody can do magic and there are no repercussions, and then then it's complete anarchy, which I mean, is fine. But uh, it, it usually doesn't create a compelling narrative. And a lot of books that I've read with magic systems, the cost, the prices, characters faint, for instance, or characters get sick, or characters lose their energy. I'm like, magic is creating the disability it's creating the chronic illness how does this how do you how do you say that magic can cure disability and therefore disability can't exist where magic is creating the disability it it, it doesn't make any sense to me but also on a side note melissa c i don't know if you've read melissa c's books but love letters for joy just came out um the main character is on the um, asexual spectrum and has cerebral palsy but melissa also loves dnd and talks a lot oh, about really the, yeah being uh yeah yeah uh so highly recommend yeah that i haven't read it yet but it has been on my list for a very long time because I, I think there's even like a little ace flag like accessory on the cover yes. if I'm if I'm picturing it right. Yes. I, I know is. I've uh, I've I've know I t- I've tweeted about it and retweeted because any anytime I get like a whisper of like not only ace rep but disabled ace rep, I'm like oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I remember us just our little disabled writer group just bawling our eyes out when we first saw that cover when we saw Aww. the little it just is so beautiful. But no, uh, Melissa writes really wonderfully and the representation in those books is great. So oh, I love that. Yeah, that th- that book has definitely been on my list for a long time. So that might have to be next because it, it was just so interesting where I 
just happened to read your book, One for All, sort of back to back with The Reckless Kind by Carly Heath. And both of them hit very weird niches in my life because the fencing and also the dresses, I wear a lot of just historical dresses also. So and with the pots and then in in Carly's book, it was sort of set in Scandinavia and they were theater kids and I am actively learning Swedish and I was also a theater kid and... And there was even a, a moment where they make hair jewelry for each other. And that that is what I do for a profession. My main job is making artwork and jewelry out of human hair and studying the history behind it. So when I'm reading these two books back to back, I'm like, wow, all these authors are just taking very niche corners of my life and finally putting them on the page. I, I was a former theater kid, too. And that that was that was one of the really frustrating things of many about POTS was like, I think that you know, it made it really difficult and almost impossible for me to do theater just in terms of the brain fog and memorizing lines, but also tech week is oh, not really feasible. You mean hell week? Yes. <laughs> and the, with the stage lights and having to stand, it's like, just stand in place and just wait there and we'll let you know when you can move. I'm like, no, I can't. I can't just stand here. I can't just stand here indefinitely. That's not going to work for me. The only time I ever actually fainted on the stage was at the end of a dance number in we were doing Les Miserables and my dance partner was I was so grateful. He was so tall and he was huge and muscular and he just like caught me very gracefully and like bride carried me off stage like it was nothing. <laughs> and it was remarkable because that could have been very bad otherwise <laughs> i've never fainted on stage i did get dizzy and trip also during a dance number and had to get my uh ankle wrapped up by a classmate who had eds so she just pulled the wrap so she was an back. expert yeah, she was just pulling <laughs> over and she's like i've got this i've got you <laughs> well yes be beware the contents of the EDS bags. We are prepared for anything. <laughs> That's where I was. I feel like for for pots, it's just we have everybody's like, why do you have this many water bottles? Why do you have salt tablets? That's weird. <laughs> In our bedroom, it is the brace drawer. Oh, yeah. We have a brace drawer. Um, I think I have a brace for every joint in my body. Um, even a couple of years ago, my uh, sacroiliac went out on me and I was like, I didn't even know that was a joint until it went out because that was deeply unpleasant. But there's a brace for that, too. So I picked up one of those. <laughs> Yeah, I have an SI joint brace as well, because that is um, my I had a very significant injury back injury turned out to be an SI joint injury uh, my sophomore year of college while fencing. And I've had chronic pain ever since. But one of the fun things were the SI joints, they just they just move around all the time. And like, yeah, the brace helps a lot. Yeah, yeah that that's a really bad joint to injure of all the joints. I think it's SI and then um, actually, now as I'm speaking to you, listeners can't see this, but I'm I'm in a hard collar neck brace today because a few days ago I subluxed a cervical vertebrae, <laughs> so one of the vertebrae in my neck went out, and that one is bad. That and the SI joint, probably the two worst ones. Yeah, I think that you know it's interesting because I also think about it in terms of you know when I was a fencer, I would injure, I would get injured all the time, and later we learned, oh, you've got chronic illnesses, you've got POTS, like, of course, you're injuring yourself, your body doesn't, you know, your blood doesn't flow in the same way that other people does, like, if your muscles don't heal in the same way, but I was constantly straining or tearing, you know, 
my quads, my hamstring. But the one time I injured my glute, I was like, wow, you actually need this to stand up. You can't stand up <laughs> yeah. without this. There are certain joints and certain muscles that you just never really think about until you hurt them. And then you go, oh, this is what yeah. is actually keeping me functioning. Yeah, no, that was the first time I injured my SI joint. I was like, I don't know what's wrong, but it's terrible. <laughs> yep. And at least knowing that I had EDS by that point, I basically, every time I have a new symptom, I will Google the symptom and then put EDS or I'll Google the symptom and then put POTS. <laughs> so then I can, instead of just reading a Wikipedia page, which is normally not descriptive enough for me, I can find forums of people who are also diagnosed with these things and talking about it. And that's how I figured, oh, this is a joint and I think I dislocated it and there's a brace for it. So let's let's go to the medical store. Uh, well, is there anything else that you want to make sure that we get to? We've covered a lot of ground with pots and queer rep, swords. Yeah. Um, no, I all your questions were so great. And I love getting to talk about all those things. Um, I think that other than oh, my, my disability representation in, in YA books or just books in general spiel, which is that if people who are listening, if if you are wondering, oh, like, you know, first book, first wa- traditionally published YA book by a major publisher with a main character with POTS. Yes. And it took a really long time, not because people aren't writing those books, that people with POTS aren't writing those books. It's because publishing has this weird obsession with the idea that chronically ill and even really disabled main characters can't exist outside of non-contemporary spaces. So if you want more books, like one for all, you have to show publishing that you're invested in the current books that already exist. So that doesn't mean just supporting one for all. It means supporting books like The Whispering Dark by Kelly Andrew, which has deaf representation, which is kind of a paranormal dark academia. It means represent. And this is when I, I forget all of my list of books with because of brain fog. Um, it means supporting, um, like, for example, the response that I've seen to Fourth Wing has been incredible to me because the main character has EDS. And the author does as well. But I haven't seen a lot of people actually talking about the disability representation in it. They're just like, oh, dragons, oh, fantasy, which is great. I'm not saying that those things aren't great. But you have to talk about the disability rep. You have to show publishers and the industry that you are invested in the representation. So we get more books by more authors and that have more perspectives. Because the fact of the matter is, I am a white woman. And yes, I there's POTS representation, but the amount of books by disabled, uh, by POC that have disabled BIPOC main characters, it's very small. And again, it's not because those books aren't being written. It's because the publishing industry functions the way it does. So we have to support those authors. We have to support these books. And that doesn't necessarily mean monetarily supporting them. It means doing whatever you can. It could be in a social media post. It can be requesting it at your local library. It could mean suggesting it. If, if you're in a book club, it can mean suggesting it to the book club. It could mean recommending it to a school in your area. There are a lot of different ways to support books and to support authors that aren't necessarily buying their book. Oh, yeah. Buying the book is very nice. 
Well, I always tell people if there's a book you want to read that you maybe can't afford a pre-order or your bookshelf's already full, like request it at your library. I have requested several books at our library and they've never told me no if I'm ever like, hey, why doesn't our library have this book? They're like, we'll order it for you. So it's it's most libraries have like forms that you can fill out online these days to just say, this is the book I want. But if they don't, you know, drop by, make a call. That's another great way to support authors. Yeah, librarians are great. I, I Half of the messages that I get from people with POTS telling me about how much the book meant to them, half of them at least are telling me, oh, my librarian recommended this book to me. So like I, I, librarians have been some of the earliest, most ardent supporters of One for All. And I really cannot thank them enough. They've been incredible. Librarians yeah. are heroes. Yeah. I'm so sad yeah. to see librarians getting attacked for... Just so much as having queer books on the shelves in some states these days, it's a really, really nasty situation because I, I think a lot of people take for that librarians are highly skilled professionals. They aren't just people that put books back on shelves. Like they know literature, they know the new books coming out, they know the old books, they know the topics. And I love getting book recommendations from librarians, yeah. just telling them some of the things I already like, some of the things about me. Like you'll hear from books that you've never heard of before if you talk to a librarian and it's wonderful. Agreed. So on that note, where can all of our listeners find you? As usual, we're going to put a link to the book if you're interested in the show notes so you can pop down there and find it. But we also want to make sure people can find you on social media and whatnot. So give us those links. Yeah. So uh, one of the perks of having the uh, a non-traditionally spelled uh, first name of Lily and my last name of Lanoff is that there's only been one other Lily Lanoff in all census records. And uh, she passed away before social media was a thing. So wow. all my social media <laughs> is just my name. It's at Lily Ladoff on uh, Twitter, which who knows if Twitter will be around by the time this podcast airs. <laughs> you know, we, we've been saying that with, I think, every guest we've had since last November. Like, well, you can find me on Twitter if it still exists. <laughs> yep, if it's still around. I love disability Twitter so much. I am I, I laugh so I don't cry because I love disability Twitter and it's the most accessible social media platform for so many of us, including myself. And the thought of losing it is horrifying but i i'm also on instagram <laughs> at the same um name and um my website is just www.lilylayoff.com where you can find more information about the book um and also links to copy to one for all um sales in the uk and in spain because the spanish language edition just came out Ooh, exciting yeah very exciting it's really cool to see your work in translation i've never had that happen before so getting to actually see that and hold that book was really special. And yeah, those are those are the two current social media platforms. I don't I who knows if there will be another social media platform that emerges from the rubble that is the bird site. But we shall see. We shall see. Well, this has been such a pleasure speaking to you today, Lily. I loved your book. I loved our conversation here today. And I really hope our listeners will go ahead and check out your book, check out your socials. I never know how to end these things. Well, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank you for being here. So uh, listeners do pop down to the show notes. Give us 
give us whatever this, this is this is what's hard about podcasts see because youtubers can be like like comment and subscribe but we're on like apple and spotify and some of them have ratings and some of them have reviews and we're on twitter so you can tweet at us so i'm like what do i say just just do the things you know what you're on you know what you need to do do them and we will talk to you all next time bye